Family, we are really, really blessed tonight because uh, we've got a special speaker that's going to be sharing from the Word of God. And I'm going to ask again if you'd pull out your bulletin and you can see a little bit more about Pastor Jay Underwood in here. But I'm going to tell you, uh, Pastor Jay and his wife, Julie, are here with us and they're six kids, uh, three biological and three adopted. And so the whole crew is going to be here this weekend and we're, we're glad for them. And uh, I'm going to get out of the way so I don't get hurt. And uh, just so you know, uh, Pastor Jay actually uh, started his career in Hollywood. He was an actor for over 20 years. And it was during that time that he came to know the Lord and began the process of not only growing in his own faith and walk, but uh, eventually God called him into full-time ministry. And now he is uh, the pastor at First Baptist Church in Weaverville. Okay, let's hear it for Weaverville. All right. So, yeah, I figured somebody... Uh, Somebody know where that was, but he can explain more about uh, where that is and the five hours it took him to get here. So uh, anyway, would you welcome our brother, Pastor Jay Underwood? Thanks, Bob. Has anybody ever been to Weaverville? <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> Weaverville is up in the northwest corner of California. In fact, once we moved up there, because I'm originally Bay Area and I lived in Southern California for a number of years, and, and once we got up there, we discovered, oh, the Bay Area is not Northern California. <laughs> they would call the Bay Area Central California, so I don't know what you all are, where you fit in, you know, here. Um, but that's, yeah, that's where Weaverville's at, and it's um, basically... I was thinking uh, my church would fit on this stage and, um, or, or it would be like one section and you're, you're about it. And not that that's a bad thing. It's a great and glorious thing. We were, Bobby and I were sharing that, that, that it's neat just to see how the Lord works in small little tiny churches and in great, big, awesome, amazing churches and every amazing and great church in between. Amen. Amen. Indeed. So yeah, it's, it, is, uh, it is my great pleasure to be here. I, I'm a little nervous after seeing Pastor Rick's uh, video there. I'm kind of having a little big brother kind of feeling right now. <laughs> now I, I, that would be awesome if he's, uh, I hope he wouldn't want to, uh, I hope I do you proud, Pastor Rick. <laughs> Glad that he's enjoying a, a break. That is, that is an awesome thing. Um, I'm just very pleased to have even been invited to come here. Thank you for having me. Your church has already uh, just treated my family and I so very graciously. And um, we've just already been blessed in the, the short time that we have been here and all the preparations kind of leading up to this moment. So with that, I just um, give you my very humble uh, thank you from the bottom of me and my family's hearts. It's neat that we could have, and our kids are kind of doing some different things this evening, and then we'll have everybody here uh, tomorrow morning. So we'll look forward to that as well. That song was absolutely uh, God putting that song in just the right spot in my mind. Uh, not only is it a great one to just remind us that in, 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 in crazy mixed up times and when we have even... Uh, a 10-year-old going to be with the Lord, um, we are reminded of God's sovereignty. We are reminded that God is absolutely on his throne. 
and, uh, and nothing can shake him, nothing can shake that. Jesus is indeed alive and well, and boy, how would we get through life were that not the case? Well, we absolutely wouldn't. So uh, I, I'm going to share something here. I'm going I'm to say this opening line to you, and it really probably is going to be kind of one of those, duh, tell us something we don't know, pastor, kind of lines, but we'll just kind of kick things off with this as we talk tonight about the cost of following Christ. You know, another way to look at it would simply be discipleship. But folks, we live in a morally chaotic society now more than ever. That's it, right? I, I think we would probably all agree that there is a lot, of, a lot of truth in that. And also, again, something that we go, well, yeah, right, tell us something we don't know, huh? But gone are, are any sense of biblical values from the fabric of our country. Our society is secularizing at an accelerated rate that we can, I think, scarcely comprehend. We are in a time that seems to celebrate wickedness. It is a time where what was wrong is now right. What was right is now seemingly wrong. We're in a time where to live a distinctly biblical life as a follower of Christ and especially out in the public eye, you, friend, are like a salmon swimming upstream. You ever feel that way? Sure. Well, actually, no, it's worse. It, it's really worse than that because society has now started to, and even in our own country, persecute and even ostracize Christians for their beliefs. One of the leaders of this moral degradation is the industry that I came out of, the entertainment industry, Hollywood, uh, and again, yeah, that I made my living in for some 20 plus years before God called me into full-time ministry, which believe me, and my wife would say a big amen, we are so thankful he did. The moral decay even in Hollywood, um, frankly, in my earlier days, and as an unbeliever, didn't bother me in the least, it didn't bother me until I became a believer, which was probably about two-thirds of the way uh, through my career. But once that happened, I slowly saw how my Christian faith would start to dictate even the kinds of parts and whatnot that I would, that I would take. Frankly, the parts I felt comfortable accepting had become fewer and far between. Now, there were some interesting things that I learned about Christians working in Hollywood. And especially once I had entered seminary, but while still doing some acting on the side, mostly commercial work to, to pay the bills while I was in seminary. First, let me just let you know, and please, I tell you this so that you could pray for them as the thought might come into your mind. There are Christians in Hollywood. There are. Believe it or not, there's a few. Secondly, and more significantly, I would tell you this. A lot of them are frankly just flat out scared. They, they are scared. They are scared to stand up at times for their faith because they know that Hollywood typically is ultra left-wing liberal and doesn't take kind to biblical values. Uh, I had an occasion where I was in seminary 
And like I said, the seminary, uh, I'd gone to them and asked if it would be okay if I still continued to work in Hollywood doing some bit parts and, and uh, commercial work to pay for my family and where we live and all that and pay the bills. And, and they never had anybody come to them and ask them that. And so they kind of thought about it and said, okay, obviously, you know, I, I told them I'm going to be making uh, the best possible decisions about the kinds of jobs and things that I would take. So uh, in any case, I'm working on a, a commercial set one day. And I would have my school books and stuff, like the interns have uh, their reading list. I had my reading list, and, and I would, was sitting out there, and I attended the Master's Seminary, which is, um, if you're familiar with John MacArthur, it's, it's, uh, it's a school that he is president of. And so I had one of my MacArthur books that I needed to read. And I'm sitting there on the set reading, uh, waiting for the next shot. And at lunchtime, this uh, cameraman, he was a camera assistant, walks up to me and kind of... Uh, you know, pulls me aside in kind of a very hush-hush way, and he said, um, can I ask you a question? That, that book that you were reading, it, it said uh, John MacArthur on it. Is he the guy that's on the radio, John MacArthur? And I go, yeah! And he goes, wait a minute, are, are, are you a Christian? And I go, yeah! And he goes, oh man, he grabs my hand, he starts pumping it up and down, he's like, so am I, so am I! It was like, you know, meeting somebody in a barren desert kind of thing, and you know, and he was just like, wow, but yet it was still kind of, let's not let the other crew know that what we're talking about kind of, kind of deal. So they're out there. It's, it's just kind of a scary place to be. And I'm not saying that Hollywood is unique to being a Christian and being scared or nervous about standing up for things or for our faith. You all are going to have that in, in all your corners of the world. And so friends, today, in, in today's world of really social and moral chaos, I believe the stakes are even higher for us Christians. It doesn't help when some churches and pastors are now also reinterpreting this right here uh, to include things like whether it be evolution or abortion or euthanasia or homosexuality. You might even consider the Pope's recent visit to the United States. He absolutely avoided very uh, somewhat un unpopular topics such as these, but you know what else he avoided? I don't know if any of you caught this, or maybe if you listen to Christian radio or whatnot, but in the first ever papal address to a joint session of Congress, he refused to even say the name Jesus. We sang that about the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus is everything to the believer. Yet you and I are still called by Jesus to be his disciples, even in the craziness of the world that we live in. We are still to carry our cross. We are to follow him even in the midst of, of extreme chaos. We might ask, well, what does that even mean? Follow him, carry your cross. And this is what we're going to find out this evening, and I'll tell you up front, it, it won't be the popular thing to do. And again, maybe some of you have already kind of figured this all out in, in your neck of the world as to how things are for you as a Christian. It won't be the popular thing to do, and it won't be easy. I want you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to uh, Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. Our text uh, this evening comes towards the latter part of Jesus' earthly ministry, where he is working his way to Jerusalem for the last time. He knows, of course, he is going to be put to death there. Throughout his journey, he has taught the disciples much about discipleship. And he continues this theme in the text we're going to look at this evening. So as he teaches them, and consequently all of us, 
what we find here is sort of a test. It is a test of true discipleship and what it means to be a follower of Christ. And so from our text this evening, Jesus will present to you four ways to know if you are a true disciple of his. So let us begin with verse 25 and in chapter 14, it says, now large crowds were going along with him and he turned and said to them, well, actually, let's just pause at the the large crowds going along with him and just make a a comment or two here. There is something significant about the fact that Luke mentions that there were large crowds that were going along with Jesus. Now, sometimes we think the large crowds following a person means that they're all supporters. Sometimes yes, and sometimes no. You have to remember that people followed Jesus for a whole host of reasons, right? Probably number one on the list was, man, he's a miracle worker. He does awesome and amazing things. You know, he turns water into wine and he raises the dead and he heals diseases and he casts out demons and, and maybe some are just wanting to see. Maybe some are wanting to experience. Some are wanting to have it happen to them or their loved ones, what have you. You also had folks in that, in that crowd there that believed that, whoa, this apparently is the long-awaited Jewish savior known as the Messiah. We better follow him and, and check it out. Also, you had his teaching His teaching, things like he was presenting to them repentance and faith and the kingdom of God and heaven and and, and belief and and how to be a a follower of his, how to be a kingdom citizen, his, his good news gospel. And the scripture tells us that they were amazed at his teaching because it was with what? Authority. Authority. They hadn't experienced that yet with people like the Pharisees, for instance. You also had the Pharisees. You had Jewish leaders mixed in. They were there for a whole host of reasons, most of which was to kind of stop Jesus, trap him, catch him in something that they could uh, accuse him of because they didn't like the way things were going with Jesus. You also had the 12 disciples that were a part of this crowd. 12 disciples being true believers, uh, minus one, obviously. Disciples outside the twelve who called themselves disciples, but when push came to shove, some fell away and some left him. And some abandoned Jesus and his teachings. We see this, for instance, in John 6, 66, after Jesus presented some teachings uh, about himself being the bread of life. These teachings were very hard for some of these disciples to kind of you know, reconcile, and it says in verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. All of this to say, there were large crowds going along with Jesus, and even many that claimed to be his followers, yet not all were true disciples. I was actually watching your pastor when uh, he was doing an Attributes of God series, and I was, happened to watch, I think it was the second, uh, the second message, and he was talking about the person who, who dresses up in the Giants get up, right? And they say they're a big Giants fan, and they wear the Giants hat, and they got the bumper sticker, and this, that, and the other, but then you start talking to him a little bit about the Giants, and you realize, they don't know anything about the Giants. That's what we're talking about here. The person that would have said that they were a follower, but when you really start talking to them, they, they're really not. They're really not. So Jesus stops the crowd, stops the crowd and takes the opportunity to point this out to them and in so doing challenges them to assess their own relationship with him, 
which you and I are now invited to do as well. So here's the first test question of true discipleship. Is Jesus your highest priority? Is he your highest priority? Look back at verses 25 and 26. Now, large crowds were going along with him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And you go, whoa, say what, Jesus? I mean, that, that sounds kind of harsh. I, I mean, I thought you were about love, love, love. You know? Are you really saying that I should hate my relatives, even my spouse, my kids? Come on, seriously, what gives? Hmm, you can hold your place there, and if you would like, you can turn over to Matthew chapter 10 with me for a moment. We'll keep our place, I wanna keep my place there. Matthew 10. Matthew 10, starting in verse 34. Here Jesus is preaching to his 12 disciples, specifically on discipleship when he says something very similar. This is chapter 10 of Matthew, picking up in verse 34. He says, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Uh, Luke 12 in the parallel passion says division. I came to bring division. Verse 35, for I came to set a man against his father, daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Man's enemies will be the members of his household. And then in verse 37, here it is. Here's the explanation for our text tonight. He says, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Do you get that? I mean, that's the point, right? That's the point that Jesus is getting at here. There will be division over the gospel. We see that much in our world today, don't we? And the simple truth is there will be division over the gospel, yes, even in our families. Even in our families. And the reason for this is because the gospel affects a person at the most deepest part of their core, their being, their soul, because it affects a person's most basic views regarding what they think about life and the, the meaning of life, right? The gospel shapes and molds a person's worldview and, and what they think and believe and why, and it is a part of their identity. It is indeed who they are. It demonstrates that they believe in a, in a creator God of the universe, of the earth, of all people. And because of this, that people, yes, are to be submissive to this God simply because he is their creator. And not just God, but of course the only way to God is through the Son, Jesus the Christ. Whereas an atheistic view of God says that there is no God. No God. The Big Bang and evolution are the order of the day, and because of this, we are all here by accident. Therefore, there is no creator that any of us have to answer to. We are all just on our own. We answer to no one but ourselves. And you know, what's funny about this is ask an atheist where their moral compass comes from, right? Because everyone has one to some degree or another. 
And it has to come from somewhere, but the atheistic worldview would say, "Uh uh-uh, there is no such thing as morality. Because you see, morality has to be rooted in something. It has to be rooted in a soul of which purely physiological blood and bone and flesh creatures produced by accident can't possibly have, right? So yes, the differences that people will have over the gospel will be extreme and they will be divisive even amongst families. Again, we see this in our world today. Many of us have had this experience. So does this mean that we back away from the truth of the gospel then? You know, just, just, well, we just won't talk about some parts of it and we won't talk about sin and things like that and, you know, let's just, let's just all get along. Well, no, of course not. Does this mean that we don't share the gospel with our unbelieving, even antagonistic family members? Well, no, absolutely not. I mean, what's the only other option but these, these loved ones would one day die and even wake up in the pit of hell? I mean, that should spur us on, right? All of this to say, Jesus must be your highest priority. He must be, even when there is division. He must be your number one love. You and I have to stand up for Jesus. Jesus is making it clear that your loyalty must be first and foremost to him. Your love for him must be greater than your love for your family. It must be greater than your love for your job. It must be greater than your love for career or school or sports or hobbies. This one gets me because I'm a fly fisherman. I think, oh man, I love fly fishing. Yes, even more, more than money, more than possessions, more than, you know, you fill in the blank. And if he's not the priority over those things, you really can't be his disciple. You really can't. I am one who believes that the scripture teaches that salvation and being a disciple are really intrinsically linked. The whole point of being saved is to become Jesus's disciple, to become his follower, right? That is what the great commission of getting the gospel out to the world is all about. In Matthew 28, verses 19 to 20, it doesn't even say, go therefore and get people saved, Get them to merely say they believe in the facts of Jesus dying and being resurrected for them. No, Jesus said, go therefore and make what? Disciples, right? Disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So you can't really separate salvation and being a disciple of Jesus. To be saved is to become a disciple. I just don't personally see things that we might deem as easy believism in the scripture, this belief that you can agree with the facts about Jesus dying for your sins and, 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 and resurrecting for your eternal life, and this gives you salvation, but you don't have to do what he says. You don't have to follow him. You really don't have to be his disciple. I just think the Bible and Jesus flat out say no to that. No, 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 no. Now, salvation and discipleship is an issue of faith. It is an issue of the heart, not merely of the mind and and not just agreeing with a bunch of facts. I mean, we read in, in Romans chapter 10, verses eight to 10, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we are preaching that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord and what? Believe in your heart. God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. 
For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. This is why James is so adamant about the fact that true saving faith will always be backed up by works because in being saved, you become a disciple, a follower of Jesus. Again, you can't separate the two. So if you are a true disciple of Christ, your love and loyalty will be to him above all others. He is to be your highest priority. Question number two, do you carry your own cross? Do you carry your own cross? Look at verse 27. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Pretty cut and dried statement, right? But again, yeah, well, so what does this mean to, to carry your own cross? Jesus already said this back in Luke 9, 23. Uh, you're welcome to turn there. I'll just be there for a moment. Um, Jesus has just fed the 5,000 and now he is alone with his disciples. He has just shared with them in verse 22 that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Now, they would have understood the cross reference because he just explained his upcoming death, which would have been understood to be by crucifixion. This coming after Jesus refers to anyone that would follow Jesus and his ways. It means they would acknowledge Jesus as their teacher. They would live in obedience to him. In other words, I mean, this is really discipleship. And it is summarized in, in three ways in this passage, according to Luke 9. The first is this. It's, it's summarized or characterized, if you will, by self-denial. Self-denial. You must deny yourself. You think, well, okay, deny myself of what? Well, the context indicates that the issue is a salvific one, right? It's about salvation. Verse 24 says that to gain life of the eternal variety, one must give it up. Um, as one pastor said, quote, to be a follower of Jesus Christ is to disown one's natural, depraved, sinful self. It is to give up all dependence on and confidence in oneself and one's works to save, end quote. You know, in a nutshell, it's saying no to sin and yes to Jesus, yes to obedience to him. But needless to say, self-denial can also be very difficult, can it? Friends, nowhere in the Bible does it say it's easy to be a Christian, Right? In fact, we would find that it's just the opposite. In Luke 13, Jesus teaches that the way to salvation is through a narrow door, which he says many will seek to enter and will not be able. In uh, 1 Peter uh, chapter 4, verse 18, Peter asks the rhetorical question, which is actually a quotation from Proverbs. He says, and if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved... What will become of the godless man and the sinner? Again, nowhere does it say once you become a Christian that things get easier. Oh, we know we have great promises, right? We have the peace that passes all understanding. We know that Jesus walks with us even through the valley of the shadow of death. So we have some tremendous promises about how he will accompany us through this life by means of the Holy Spirit. 
I was thinking about this just in regard to my own life. You know, in, in, in my Hollywood days, there was no self-denial. <laughs> you know, there just wasn't. There was a whole lot of sin. No, no, no self-denial for Christ. I just took whatever kinds of parts I wanted, whatever I, I kind of felt like. Even when I first became a Christian, I was still doing this thing where I kind of compartmentalized my life. I know a lot of people have had kind of a similar experience. Right, where, where, where everything's on the same playing field. Over here you have your job or your career, and, and then over here you have your marriage, and you have your kids, and you have your hobbies. Oh yeah, and you got church and Jesus and all that stuff. It's all just kind of on the, on the same plane there, not really denying ourselves anything. And finally, the Lord allowed the light bulb to go off and went, oh, wait a minute. And it was first uh, with my wife and I at a marriage retreat. We went, we're doing this all the wrong way. Jesus, God, gotta be up here. And everything else flows out from him, from the word. Marriage, family, yes, job, career. Ooh, maybe that means some self-denial needs to start happening here and making some better choices. Because yeah, I was able to justify anything. Now also in regard to discipleship, there's this issue of cross-bearing. The disciples understood that the cross meant death. It meant death by crucifixion. Death in a most torturous, agonizing, and very humiliating way. Criminals sentenced to crucifixion had to carry their own cross to the site of their crucifixion to show the cross-bearer's submission to the government. In Jesus' case, he was, of course, an innocent man who would suffer rejection, uh, public shame, humiliation, and death. Which brings about another nuance for our cross-bearing, that we too will innocently suffer things. We will be rejected as believers, and we will be shamed, and we will be humiliated, not for something necessarily we did wrong, simply for the cause of Christ. And so folks, uh, as a Christian, to take up one's cross means that, simply put, you are no longer living for yourself. Oh, that is so difficult. It's still difficult for me. No longer living for ourselves. This concept reinforces the self-denial and submission to God. It means that you have a willingness to endure even daily the things that Jesus endured. Hostility, rejection, hatred, reproach, shame, persecution, suffering, even death, if that's what God called you to. It is said that when the nights of King Arthur's court returned from the field of battle if they did not bear in their bodies some scar of the battle. They were thrust forth by the king with the command, go get your scar. I, I can't really say that I have any serious cross-bearing scars on my body, though, though um, I'm sure they're, they're out there ready to come. I mean, even as an actor, again, I was only a believer for a short time in my career, so there weren't a lot of scars there. I was thinking about this today, and, and, uh, and somebody that popped into my mind was my own son. We have a 19-year-old son who just had his first year of college, but his last year of high school, up there in Weaverville, in, in, in our, our, our public high school, he uh, was in a lot of classes with a lot of the, the same kids, a lot of AP courses and, and whatnot. And, and, um, and they would often, uh, they had a very kind of liberal-minded teacher, and they often talked about kind of political and social issues. And it always seemed that the majority of the kids that he was in class with went to a much more kind of liberal bent on things. And my son 
I praise God for this, just had this whole experience of what was he going to do? Was he going to stand up for his faith or was he going to kind of shrink and just kind of be go along with them? Or would he just sit in the corner and be quiet? And you know what? I'm, I'm pleased to say he stood up for his faith. And you know what? He took some wax. He took some wax, not so much even from the teacher, but really from the other students. One time, I don't know if you're familiar with Al Mohler. I love Al Mohler. He does a great podcast with a Christian biblical worldview and deals with kind of social issues and topics of the day kind of, kind of thing. And we had the chance to, to meet Al Mohler at, a, at a, a, a conference down south. And so my son Jack went up and told him how uh, in the midst of one of their discussions, he was able to read one of Al Mohler's papers that he had written, I think, on homosexuality and, 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 and what the Bible would, would say about it to the class. And he did. And they beat him up, you know, not physically, literally, but they, they, they tore him up. They took him to task. Thirdly, in this little realm of discipleship, obedience, this isn't our next question, but, but, but obedience is a part of this, right? It stands to reason that as one practices self-denial and submitting themselves to Christ, and one takes up their cross of suffering on behalf of Christ, obedience would already be in effect, Right? Uh, Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount that only those who do the will of his Father will enter into heaven. The same sermon in Luke 6, 46 says, Jesus asking, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? The implied answer, if you really believe Jesus to be your Lord, then you will obey him. John 14 and verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And in 15 and verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love, you are my friends if you do what I command you. I just think it couldn't be any more clearer that for the disciple of Jesus, those who would follow him must be committed in their obedience to him. This is the kicker, isn't it? This is where it gets really tough. People don't want to deny themselves anything. They certainly don't want to suffer, let alone for someone they can't see or touch. Uh, they definitely don't want anyone else telling them what to do. This is people's rejection of Christ, right, that we see explained in Romans chapter 1. But here's what they don't get. They don't get that to be a follower of Christ and do these things to deny themselves, to carry their cross, to live in obedience to Jesus, this is actually going to benefit them. And not only in this life, in the life to come, of course. We forget what 1 John 5, 3 promises, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. No, his commandments give life, his commandments give freedom, his commandments ah, are fresh air. They will revive us, they are food to our bodies and water to our souls. Charles Spurgeon said, there are no crown wearers in heaven that were not cross bearers below. The third question in our discipleship test is this. Have you counted the cost of following Jesus? Have you counted the cost of following Christ? Look at verse 28. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it and begin to ridicule him, saying, oh, this man began to build and was not able to finish. 
Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. These are just simply illustrations Christ is giving us about counting the costs and how we do it every day in different aspects of our life And he's telling us that we need to do it even here in our spiritual lives, our spiritual walks with following Jesus. His point is that for anything of importance, we count the cost. I remember when my wife, we, uh, in fact, Pastor Bobby and I were just talking about a little briefly about uh, wives being uh, stay-at-home moms, and, 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 uh, but it wasn't always like that. And at one point, um, we just kind of sensed the Lord working in our hearts for my wife, Julie, to be a stay-at-home mom. And you know, what do you do? Man, we count up the cost. And we were like, oh, I don't know if this is going to work. You know, but then you figure in all the other things and this, that, and the other, and what, and we, you know, took a step of faith. But we counted the cost. We counted the cost. Before I left uh, Hollywood to go into the ministry, I remember a friend of mine telling me, hey, you need to count the costs. You need to see what you're willing to give up here, knowing that your life is going to change dramatically. And I went home, and my wife and I counted the cost together, and we were both like, ah, oh, yes, yes. We're ready for it. Do you know that even your salvation comes with a cost? It does. I mean, sure, there was an enormous cost to Christ for your salvation, for my salvation, but there's also a cost to you and I. Now, I'm not, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that you work for your salvation. Salvation is by grace, right? Through faith. But by accepting God's free gift of forgiveness of sins and eternal life, you are making the decision to be his disciple to follow him and that comes with a cost here on earth probably most pointedly most directly persecution 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12 indeed all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted there is a cost and uh, again I think this is kind of like probably preaching to the choir here but have you noticed that the heat is starting to get turned up out there in the world? Oh, it is. From cake bakers to florists and photographers who would refuse to participate in gay weddings, which is really an oxymoron, because in the Lord's eyes, there really would be no such thing, who because of this have lost their businesses. To people like Kim Davis, the county clerk of Rowan County, Kentucky, who was jailed for denying to issue these marriage licenses. To states wanting to stand up for the rights of its citizens to not have to share a restroom with a member of the opposite sex. Pastors in other countries have already been charged with hate crimes for preaching and teaching what the Bible says. And people, we've seen in the news, have been beheaded for being a Christian Oh, the costs are high, folks. They are extremely high. This made me think of a story uh, you might have heard in the news a little, little while ago or maybe in this last year. Atlanta fire chief Kevin Cochran was fired by the mayor of Atlanta because of his personal views about biblical sexual morality that he expressed in a Christian men's devotional book written in his personal time where the issue of biblical sexuality was briefly mentioned in the whole 162-page manuscript. He was never accused of expressing these views while on the job. 
He was never accused of proselytizing on the job or of doing anything that could be construed as discriminatory, even after a city investigation showed that Cochran did not discriminate against anyone, the mayor still fired him. Fired him, citing as his basis, ironically, the need to tolerate diverse views. Have you counted the costs? Are you ready? Fasten your seatbelts, folks, because the turbulence is, well, it's already here. It's going to get rougher, and I believe it's going to get worse because you will be challenged to stand up for this. You will be challenged to stand up for Christ, biblical truth, and whatever the cost, you have to be ready for it, right? Even if it means that your livelihood would be threatened. Fourth and lastly, test question of discipleship. Is following Jesus worth more to you than the pleasures of the world? Is following Jesus worth more to you than the pleasures of the world? Look at verse 33. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. And you think, are we to, seriously again, take this literally? I mean, what about the followers of Jesus, you know, who had houses and money and, you know, they would even help bankroll some of his ministry. And again, like before, Jesus is making a point. He's making a point here. Uh, again, it's about self-denial. Uh, the parables of the hidden treasure and the costly pearl kind of explain this well. When Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now remember the rich young ruler uh, in his mind. He had done everything he needed to do to inherit eternal life. Until Jesus said there's one more thing he needed to do to demonstrate his being a true disciple of Jesus. Sell all that he had, give it to the poor, and come and follow Jesus. And you remember the man went away sad because he was very rich. And you see, part of the problem with a desire for the things of the world is our love and pursuit of them and how easily this can just take us over. You just grab hold of us and drag us under. And don't misunderstand, this isn't about being rich or having big houses or even nice cars or, or jewelry or other toys. The poorest person can sinfully pursue the wrong things, sinfully pursue possessions or, or wealth or power, status, prestige, whatever, right? You name it. Whatever the world has to offer that sinfully appeals to you. We might remember the seed that fell among the thorns. This is the person who hears the word of God, but the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. On occasion, uh, somebody will ask me if I, if I miss Hollywood. And I always tell them, you know, I, I love the art of acting. I, I, I love movie making even, and the, the whole kind of process there. But the Lord also revealed to me that there was much of it that was just me satisfying my, my worldly pleasures as well. And in fact, one of the things that the Lord changed in my heart 
just as he called me into full-time ministry, was this, this kind of understanding, you know, that, well, if one day I would be standing before the Lord and he might say to me, so, Jay, what did you do with the time that I gave you down there on earth? I thought to myself, what, what, what am I going to do? Am I going to start rattling off my uh, resume? Oh, well, Lord, you know, I, I, did, I did that movie or I did that TV show. Oh, that, <laughs> that was a funny one. Don't you remember that, God? That was a good one. Oh, yeah. Made a lot of people happy. Yeah, well, what about those ones that were on at 2 a.m., Jay? Oh, yeah, we could just forget about those, huh? Yeah, no, I, I, the Lord brought me to that point where I thought, that's just rubbish. It's just stuff to be burned up in the fire. It's wood, hay, straw. I truly wanted to be able to stand before the Lord and have him say, oh, well done, good and faithful servant. Come on in, come on in. Friends, we always need to keep our priorities straight. Seek after heavenly treasure that will last for all eternity. This is what we need to do. So what happens if you failed the test? Look at verse 34. He says, therefore, salt is good, but if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil. He's referring there to it being like a fertilizer or for the manure pile, meaning it would never decompose, so it wouldn't work there. It is thrown out. In other words, if, if you claim to be salt, that is a disciple of Jesus, but you have failed this four-question test, then you would have to ask yourself if you are really a true follower. Because the fact is, is you really have no flavor, therefore you have no ability to be useful to him. In fact, you're not even good to fertilize the soil with. You're not even good for the manure pile because you'll never decompose. In other words, those who masquerade as a true disciple but are really imposters offer nothing of value to Christ or his kingdom and he says they should be thrown out. The other option is that you are a true believer. Maybe you're in sin. Maybe you're in sin and you need to repent. For that, yes, confess, repent, return to the Lord, for he is gracious and merciful and forgiving. And lastly, look at just this last part of verse 34. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, there's steep consequences for those who masquerade as disciples. In other words, don't wear the costume. Be the real deal. And it starts with knowing Christ, coming to that, that understanding that you are a sinner, that you have transgressed a holy, perfect, righteous God. And God in his, his justice has to punish sin. He can't just kind of wink at it or sweep it under the carpet kind of thing. That's the bad news. Right, that the punishment is indeed death, not just physical death, but eternal death, even hell, punishment for our sins. Oh, but God, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? That whoever, say it with me, believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. If you would repent and believe, if you would put your faith and trust and, and your hope in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, for what he did on the cross on your behalf, taking sin, your shame upon himself, becoming sin, literally becoming sin for us. 
And not just then that he died, but that he was buried, put in the tomb. Three days later, rose victoriously. We sang that tonight, didn't we? Resurrected, which gives proof that he is who he says he is, that we indeed can trust that we do indeed have eternal life to look forward to and the forgiveness of sins. If you would put your faith in him tonight, then you too will, will leave here as a kingdom citizen, a child of God. Be the real deal. And if you believe yourself to be that disciple, you know that you are a follower of Christ and you have passed the test. Ask how, Lord, you might excel still more. How might I excel still more, God? Maybe you will then disciple and encourage another brother or sister in their walks. Again, is Jesus your highest priority? Do you carry your own cross? Have you counted the cost of following him? Is following Jesus worth more to you than the pleasures of the world? Be a true disciple. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I do thank you for, Lord, your word of truth. Thank you, Lord, for scripture. Thank you, Lord, for your son, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit that indwells each of us who believe. And Lord, we just pray tonight. We pray, Father, for anyone here that maybe has never placed their faith in your son, that they would trust him even right now, Lord, in their heart of hearts, that he is their forgiver of sins, that he is their savior, that he went to the cross on their behalf, that he died and rose again so that they would know, Father, that he is God. And that, Lord, they will receive the blessing of eternal life with him for having simply believed with that true heart. We pray that you would help us be disciples, Lord, that would be worthy of you and, and worthy of your kingdom here on earth. Help us, Lord, when we are faint-hearted and help us when we just feel like our knees kind of waffling or, or the wind being knocked out of us, Father. Encourage us, Lord, to just press on for your glory. In your son's name, amen. amen. Would you appreciate Pastor Jay?